Hi, today's reading is taken from Romans 3, uh, 21 to 26. You can find it on the order of service, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. Well, it is wonderful to have been with you over these last few weeks, and as we conclude our little mini-series with Romans chapter 3 today, I want to begin, if I may, by asking you to consider some very important questions, which I hope to return to at the end. So first of all, do you think you would describe your Christian life as joyful or dreary or somewhere in between? Is obedience to God a delight for you? Or a terrible grind, or something in between. Do you sometimes feel that you're unforgiven? You know, the past rises up and overwhelms you, and you maybe wonder if God really does love you, whether He loves you as much as Christians are always saying that He does. Do you ever feel that you have a a problem with the people that you have to work with here at Parliament, or with certain people at your church? For whatever reason, you just can't stand to be around them any longer. Well, I think that the passage that we finish with today speaks directly into all of these situations, and I will come back to them at the end. But for the moment, I want to begin by presenting you with one of the biggest dilemmas that this world has ever known, and it is of a God who is loving through and through, and who longs to draw people to himself. And this God, who is absolutely holy and who abominates sin in a way that we cannot even vaguely begin to come to terms with because we come to terms with sin all the time. This loving God, who cannot truck sin in any way, shape or form, is now faced with you and I, sinful people. And this God has said time and time again that he will not declare the wicked right. It's as plain as that. He says, I will make sure that justice is done. The wicked will ultimately get what they deserve. Now that's a real conundrum, isn't it? How are we going to solve that one? Well, there are at least two solutions which people tend to present us with, both of which are thoroughly unsatisfactory. So I want to whiz them out of the way first and then show you how God deals with this. 
Because strange to say, it's not a problem to God. It appears to be a problem when we look at it, but it's no problem at all to God. Let me first tell you the two solutions that people tend to go in for. So first of all, they say that God's love is so great that it overrides his holiness. And that in the end, everything will be subsumed into God's love. Now that seems a godlike thing to do, doesn't it? Until you read the Bible. You see, if you stop to think that one through, it is marvellous in sentiment, but it is horrific in detail. See, because what will happen on the Day of Judgment is that God will pat me on the head and say, well, it doesn't matter, old thing. It doesn't matter. And the six million through the gas chamber, they don't matter. And Rwanda and Lebanon and Iraq and 9-11 and Syria and Toronto, well, they don't matter either. In fact, nothing matters. And that's the end of that. See, that's how horrific that solution is. But we often get put on the run by it because it sounds like it's right. But it fills me with more dread than I can think of. For it is plain to me that justice is often not done in this life. If it means that it's never going to happen, never. Well, that would be just the most appalling thing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Well, now let me tell you the other solution. Well, the other solution is that we're not as bad as everyone says that we are. What generation do they think that we're living in? I mean, how can we possibly pretend, knowing what we know about the human heart on its wider scale, that we're not as bad as all that? I mean, wouldn't you be a fool to think that you're not capable of the things that other people are capable of? And if you really think that all God needs to do is to just get rid of all the rapists and the murderers and the child abusers and heaven would be fine and everything would be okay, then all you need to do is to tune into the latest reality TV show or spend some time looking each day at what people continually post on social media. No, that's definitely not the solution. But God's solution is a perfect, God-like solution. Look back with me at Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now... But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. Verse 22. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 25. God has presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. See, God's solution is to make it possible for us to have right standing with him as a gift. In other words, God says, look, I have made a way for everyone, yes, everyone, to be treated right with me, to be justified, that is, to be treated by God just as if we've never sinned. That status can be yours, and that status can be mine. Now, believe it or not, that's what the whole of this book of Romans so far has been driving at. 
See, after a brief introduction for two and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul has, has been literally applying the gloom with a palette knife. So he's spoken of a world that is so morally and spiritually degenerate that it has provoked God's anger. And if that wasn't morbid enough, he has literally gone out of his way to systematically destroy every possible shred of hope that we might have tried to preserve in our defence. So are you an atheist or an agnostic, he said? Well, you've got no excuse because your conscience will condemn you. Are you perhaps a religious person, he said? Well, don't think that you can plead your moral respectability or your religion or your church going because your hypocrisy will condemn you. And so finally, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, verse 19, just before our verses, chapter 3, verse 19, that whoever we are, you and I are guilty before him. In other words, chapter 3, verse 19, do we really think that when we face God on the last day, that we will really have something to say? No, verse 19 or, or verse 23 in our verses, every mouth will be silenced. See, the words will quite literally freeze on our lips and all that we'll be left with is the damning confession of our guiltiness. See, look at the end of verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, look, there really is no difference between us. And he needs, of course, to tell us that because we don't actually think of things that way, do we? See, we don't put ourselves all in the same boat naturally, do we? So, of course, we put some people on a pedestal and they're the obnoxiously good. And then there's the very good people and some of us will be there. And then there's the good people and most of us would be there. And then there's the not bad lot, and the best thing about them is they're not as good as us, and we're all agreed that then there's the, the awful, and they're simply beyond the pale. Now, you might have your own grading system, and you might have different labels, and they might be more grades than that, but isn't that the natural way we tend to think? And yet what the Apostle Paul is saying is, that's all very well, but as soon as you shine the light of God on the scene, then all distinctions tend to pale into significance. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned. And that word sinned is a word that came to be used of an arrow that failed to reach its target. You know, the one that didn't come up to the mark. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that word for fall short is another athletics word. And it's the word that would be used in a race when someone drops off the pace. You know, you see the, the athletes going round and round the track for 10, 20, 30 laps. And the one at the front begins winding up the pace and stretching out the field. And slowly people drop off the back of the pack as they can't keep up. And soon the commentator says, well, it's a race for second place. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you actually stop looking at one another and start shining the glory of God onto the scene, well, there's actually no distinction. See, it's not no use grading things the, the way that we do, for the picture is actually a very different one, verse 23. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. 
And the question is, how does God cope with this? I mean, how can God grant an acquittal to people who have not earned it and don't deserve it? Well, the answer comes marvellously, doesn't it, in verse 24. Look at verse 24. For God has provided us with a free gift in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 24. And again, let me see if I can paraphrase this for us. Verse 24. See, you and I are justified, that is, we are put right by God's generosity through the redemption. That is Christ Jesus. Now, as soon as Paul's readers heard that word redemption, their minds would have automatically gone to the slave market. And they'd have thought of those times when a person trapped in slavery was paraded in the public square, but whose freedom could be redeemed if only someone would put up the money. And that's the way that the Apostle Paul portrays God's solution here. See, there's nothing we can do, for each of us is stuck in our own sin. But suddenly, God puts somebody forward, Jesus, someone who can pay the price. And what a price, because he pays for it by his blood. Now, blood speaks of death, doesn't it? So when you see blood on the road, you immediately fear the worst. So, you know, you see the mangled remains of of the push bike. And when you see the battered body lying by it, surrounded by everyone desperately trying to remember their first aid, you fear the worst if blood's there. Because if blood's there, you fear death. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the death of Jesus, that, that death which he died on the cross, was the ransom price or the way in which God puts right people who don't deserve to be put right with him. Do you see how it's described in verse 25? As a sacrifice of atonement. Now again, the the Jews in Rome would have understood this picture very clearly. See, they used to have a day of atonement, where once a year a great gathering took place and sins would be confessed and two goats would be brought out. And as the people confessed their sins, one of the goats would be killed. It was a very vivid reminder of the seriousness of sin, that it brings with it judgment. And the blood of that goat would be scattered as a a mark that judgment had been passed. And then the other goat would be brought before the high priest. And he would then put his hand up on the goat's head And he would, so to speak, symbolically, I mean, you could never do this literally, transfer the sins of the people onto the goats. And that goat would then be led away into the wilderness, never to be seen again, literally bearing away the sins of the people. And so do you see how the Apostle Paul is saying, verse 25, that that double picture of firstly God's love, bearing away the sins of the people, and secondly God's justice in rightly punishing our wickedness, was now once and for all being fully and finally and freely satisfied in one man, Jesus Christ. 
See, God has put somebody forward, someone without sin, someone who has led the life that we cannot live, so that he could die the death that we deserve to die. And mark you, brothers and sisters, this is big. It is not little. See, when Jesus Christ cried out in agony from his cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was literally bearing in his body the sins of the whole wide world. All of yours and all of mine and the six million through the gas chamber and Rwanda and Lebanon and Iraq and Afghanistan and 9-11 and every other wretched thing for the whole of history. All of it caught up in that cry. I say again, it is a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And to trivialise it and to, to take it for granted as we so often do it is not just foolish, it is the most appalling insult to God when he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might be counted for all time right with God. Isn't that wonderful? See, whenever we look at Christ upon the cross, never again can we see, say that sin doesn't matter. And never again can we say that God doesn't care about justice. He does. See, he's passionately concerned about every injustice in the world. And the only solution to this is in the death of Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, the attributes of love and justice are not warring within him. See, at the start, I presented this dilemma as if it were unsolvable. But in the character of God, his perfect love and his perfect justice are all held together in perfect balance. And and so, verse 25, as God presents Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement... Never again can we say that God doesn't care about justice. And never again can we say that God doesn't care about sin. And never again can we say that he doesn't love us. He does. See, look at verse 26 again, verse 26. Not only is he just, verse 26, but he has made it possible for everyone to be justified. That is, to deal faithfully with sins, and yet also to save the sinner. And look at verse 22. See, all this, verse 22, is freely given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who will believe. In other words, it's a free gift, and it's yours for the taking. You know, I think back to the time some years ago when it was my little niece's birthday. And as you can imagine, she loved it. Presents coming in all day long and she was ripping them open and giggling with glee. Also, her elder brother found the whole thing disgusting because he loved presents too and they were all going in the wrong direction. In fact, according to my brother, he gave up singing happy birthday after a little while. He said, I can't sing happy birthday anymore because I'm not happy. Of course, as soon as he was given a present, a a smile returned to his little face and he he ripped it open in two seconds flat. 
Mind you, once you become an adult, you become much more suspicious about presents, don't you? I mean, if I'd accosted you on the way in and said, oh, by the way, I've got a present for you, at least half of you wouldn't have smiled at all, would you? Because you'd have been wondering, what's in it? What's the catch? Come on, tell me what's behind it all. Of course, if you'd been my niece or nephew, you'd have snatched it out of my hands before I'd finished the sentence. Whereas some of you wouldn't have even offered your hand to receive it until you'd properly interrogated me about it. See, we don't like the idea of receiving charity, do we? And of course, many of us play the same game with God. We'd much rather try and build our own bridges by the things that we do rather than actually accepting the way that he has provided at very great cost to himself to make us right with him. And yet God says that the only way to be put right with him is to receive the gift that he has made available to all through the death of Jesus. See, for those who take God at his word, his gift of righteousness is waiting both for you and for me. You know, there are so many people going regularly to churches and chapels throughout the country who are so conscious of their sin and the knowledge that their lives fall short of God's perfect standard weigh them down and their guilt just just gets under their skin and burdens every every moment of their, their day as they try to put themselves right in every possible way. Well, if that's you, then I plead with you this lunchtime, for goodness sake, stop trying to build your own futile bridges and accept the free gift that has been prepared for you by God himself. Because it's waiting for anyone who will receive it. Of course, many of us here today have received God's wonderful gift of forgiveness. And to all of you, I want to say firstly, firstly, that in God's eyes, Know that you are as if you had never done anything wrong. So leave here today knowing that whatever you've done in the past, whoever you are, whatever you're like, God sees you as a perfect person in Christ. Now that's got to be something to be joyful about, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Totally forgiven, totally acceptable to God, whatever your past, no terror in judgment. Now, as I say, you can't take that on board fully and not be joyful. And I want to say that if your Christian life isn't all that joyful, it's got to be that you've moved your eyes away from that which Jesus has done for you. Put it back into focus again. Put it back into focus. The second thing I want to say is, did you know that God has given us throughout the whole of our lives ample opportunity to say to God, look, I'd just like to say thank you. I'd just like to say thank you. I mean, what do you normally do when someone has done the most amazing kindness to you? I mean, you'll do almost anything, won't you, to express your gratitude. You see, what could become the grind of obedience always turns into joyful service if you keep looking at Christ and at how much he loves you and at how much he has done for you. And can I say that if you're finding your Christian life a bit dry or a bit bothersome at the moment, 
it can only be because you have moved your focus away from the death of Jesus and all that he has done for you. Put it back into focus again. Turn it over in your mind how much he really does love us. And then thirdly and finally, just remember as you look around at the people you rub shoulders with on a daily basis, that if anyone is good enough for God on the basis of the death of Jesus, then dear brothers and sisters, I don't care who they are, they've got to be good enough for you, haven't they? They've got to be good enough for you. Let me pray. Let me pray for us. But now, a righteousness from God comes through faith to all who believe. Our loving Father, we thank you for the gift of right standing before you. We cannot imagine what it must have meant both to you and the Lord Jesus to bear the sin of the whole world. But we ask that you would help us to be really thankful so that the grind would be taken out of our obedience. Please help us to love one another and to accept one another on the same basis that you accept us. And if there's anyone here today still to accept the free gift of forgiveness, we pray that they might be able to do it even today. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.